Good morning. Open your completed and your all sufficient, your wonderful, preserved word for us to the Gospel of Mark. We want to wish a happy Father's Day to all our wonderful dads out there. I want you to know we pray for your strength and your leadership. Being a man of faithfulness and to the word and demonstrating daily to your family what it means to follow Christ. Look, dads, every secular force in the world right now wants to take men down. The world desires to minimize and even mock the role of a father today, especially if they happen to be masculine. That's even worse, isn't it? Of course, when is the last time that we saw on a a Hollywood movie or a sitcom with the depiction of a strong father figure? Answer, never. The father's depicted as the the henpecked guy, right? The bumbling fool always, isn't he? Well, that's good news, Dad. If that's where they are attacking, you're right over the target. You're right over the target. So, dads, let that toxic masculinity flow today. Wives and children, love on your dads today. Often we have no idea the pressures that the world and the enemy put on them. So we love you, dads. We pray for you as you stand for Christ and for your family. And our love and thanks as well to Brady and Diana for drawing our affections heavenward in praise this morning. Doesn't it till the hearts of our so- the, the soil of our hearts that we might receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save our souls? This is the Lord's day, and we are here to inflame our hearts toward the word, to be spurred on toward righteousness in Christ. So we pray that every receptor of every heart be attuned, that every mind might be attuned to what the Spirit of God would say to his people through his word. And yet we must be awakened and alive this morning, not for the sake of acquiring knowledge alone, beloved. The Christian faith is a faith of application and of practical pursuit that sets our heart toward eternity. You know, Puritan preacher William Secker in his work, The Consistent Christian, he published this in 1660, and he writes, quote, Mere head knowledge will be as unhelpful to the soul on judgment day as a painted fire is unhelpful to the frozen body on a cold day. <clears throat> Meaning theoretical knowledge may make the head giddy, but it will never make the heart holy. How many professors of Christianity are there who have light enough to know what should be done, but have not love enough to do what they know? Give me the Christian, Secker says, who perfectly sees the way he should go and readily goes the way he sees. Close quote. Indeed, as we have often pointed to Paul's exhortation to the Philippians, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Oh, beloved, the danger of love without knowledge. For without knowledge, how can you tell me what and who it is that you love? How can we stand upright with a steel spine in the hurricane of the world and declare that love when doctrine and knowledge are the very bones of that body? And more deadly still, the danger 
of knowledge without love. That we would be empty inside. A whitewashed tomb. A clanging symbol. Unprofitable. Yes, Scripture declares that God is love. And thus we must answer, who then is God? That we might know him this morning, knowing how to live in the midst of this perverse world and having the love to do it. The call of the Christian pulpit is not for open hearts and open minds. It is for full hearts and full minds. Paul exhorts the Ephesians, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Hearts and minds, beloved, both full and ever being filled this morning. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we were so blessed to host Nathan Wetmore and his wife Kaylee as he completes his seminary training at Southern Seminary. How many of us were encouraged? By the Lord raising up the next generation of preachers. What an encouragement for those who are approaching the sunsetting years of their life. To see God's faithfulness to his church long after you're gone. What a blessing that was. We are thankful for that message. And thus the week prior, if you can still recall back that long, we continued our incredible march through the Olivet Discourse. As we look to our future time known as the Great Tribulation with the advent of the abomination of desolation, kicking off a time in our world unseen before and ever will be, Jesus says, inaugurating the second three and a half years of far worse devastation, we looked last message to the trumpet and to the bold judgments coming out of the seventh seal in Revelation. These are the days that had the Lord not shortened them, no one would live. No one would survive. We were reminded that this will be a time of great religious deception. That the label of Christian will still very much exist. We considered how many will remain on earth after the church is taken who falsely, who shallowly, or heretically name the name of Christ. Jesus tells us that many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. There are many false converts. There are many wolves amongst the sheep. There are many who co-opt and use the name of Christ for their own means and ends. Many who have built cults around the name of someone called Jesus. In fact, the label of Christian will still be so prevalent, Scripture says that false Christs will pop up all over the place, claiming, I am he. Thus, as we looked last week to the trumpet and bold judgments as Well, as hard as that was to wade through, it was also a great encouragement. Not only do we possess an an innate sense of justice and a desire to see it meted out when wickedness is flaunted, but marching through these bowls and judgments, marching through the final battle on the plains of Megiddo, leads us to arguably the greatest and most awesome event in all past and future history, that of the second coming of Christ. We will approach that glorious event next week. You will not want to miss that. Well, recall in our previous installment of Last Things, what else did we do? We listened in awe, did we not? At the great sound of heaven. At the great sound of heaven. 
the incredible roar that emanates from the throne room, that cries, the cries of worship and praise, the four creatures crying, holy, seeing that heaven is positively brimming with the most awesome and thunderous roars of adulation that we cannot even imagine it. And we were blessed to study the incredible sounds of heaven because an equally incredible scene we beheld in Revelation 8.1. Something happened there never before in history. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Silence. Not a murmuring was heard. Silence, meaning without sound. When the Lamb, having broke the final seal... All of heaven could now see what was contained within. And silence fell over heaven for a half an hour. Meaning there were no words for the calamity and finality that was about to be unleashed upon mankind. It was like nothing even the strong angels of heaven had ever seen before. The expectation of the coming trumpet and bold judgments caused all of heaven to stop their breath in awe at the righteous judgments of God. And still we blazed fairly quickly through those seven trumpets and bowls. We didn't linger on them, well, because our text in Mark doesn't call for that. But we were obligated to look at these, these awful coming calamities because they set the context for what, Mark, for what Jesus says in Mark 13, 24 and 25. We cannot appreciate or capture Jesus' words unless we've seen all that mankind has gone through up to this point. Knowing that the seven trumpets and the seven bowls precede, meaning they, they come before Jesus' final warning here in Mark's gospel. So having set that context in our last installment, today we're afforded the wonderful opportunity to now exposit these verses before us. And by looking at the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, we've essentially walked ourselves right up to our verses today. So with that, let us open with our text, beloved, Mark 13, 24 through 25. Mark 13, 24 through 25. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that the Gospel of John tells us that you did and said more things that all the books in the world could not contain them. But you have chosen to preserve this for us. That your people, for all ages to come, would know, would know. Heavenly Father, we ask, as always, that you would prepare our hearts. That you would meet every need that has walked in here today. We pray, Lord, that you, the God of the word, would till the soil. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, back in the second century A.D., there was a fellow named Marcion. Students of church history will know this man, and his name sends a shudder up our spine, honestly. He was a Gnostic, and he rejected the God of the Old Testament. He rejected him because he saw him as someone who was vengeful and wrathful and angry. 
So instead, choosing only to affirm the loving and forgiving God that Marcion thought he saw in the New Testament. But you see, Marcion couldn't stop there because he had a big problem. That the Old Testament is all over the New Testament. And so he took about grabbing his Gnostic scissors and he set about to make his own canon of scripture by literally cutting out any references to the Old Testament from the Hebrew New Testament. Cut, cut, cut. Well, by the time Marcion was done, all he had left were some excerpts from Luke's gospel and, the Pauline's, and, and some Pauline epistles. That's it. That's it. Now, of course, the spirit of Marcion lives on today. Notice recently uh, a pastor of one of the largest megachurches in America, Andy Stanley, famously announced that Christians should, quote, unhitch themselves from the Old Testament, close quote. He said that the Old Testament was a hindrance to reaching the lost and that all people really need to know is that Jesus rose from the dead. Don't get caught up in the weeds of the Old Testament. It's time to let that go. Time to unhitch from the Old Testament. Of course, every Bible-believing Christian who heard that sat bolt upright in their chair. Such a foolish statement has rarely been uttered and not been held in heretical contempt. To unhitch the old from the New Testament would be like separating out light and dark flakes in a pepper shaker. It's impossible. It can't be done. And even if you could, it wouldn't even taste like true pepper anymore. It simply can't be done. It is the old covenant that illuminates and points to the new. It is one beautiful, continuous tapestry thread in all of redemptive history from beginning to end. Where the risen Lord on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, he came alongside the two disciples. And Jesus used the Old Testament, or what they would call the scriptures then. Saying to them, oh foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Anyone who believes we can unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament or would even desire to do such a thing, we can say with confidence, has never known the God of Scripture. Indeed, how can they? How can they? But how does that bear in on our text today? Well, if I was Marcion or Andy Stanley, I would have absolutely no idea what to do with the text before us today. Why is that? Well, if you look closely at the text, either up on the screen or depending on your choice of translation, the translation in your hand, if it happens to be NASB or LSB or some others, you'll notice something a little unusual in the lettering, won't you? What do you notice? You'll see that we have both lowercase and capitalized sentences and words. And what does that mean? Very simply, all cap sentences are quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Thus, we can see that our text today is going to send us headlong into the Old Testament. 
and what a wonderful thing that is. Beloved, why does the presence of all caps bring joy to our soul? Why? Because it reminds us, it declares to us that there is one word and one God of the word. And that he speaks with perfect clarity and perfect consistency. What was the plan, is the plan, will always be the plan. God has not been caught off guard. These events in scripture, whether they are joyous or difficult or even downright scary, are in place from the beginning. What comfort ought that to bring an anxious soul this morning? Now, before we look at what we do see in our text, which is vast and glorious, I want us to observe something that we do not see as Jesus speaks with his disciples about these truly awesome cosmic events. In these two verses of text, consider, consider the utter magnitude of what Jesus is describing is going to happen. The sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven. The powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Now, under, ultimately understanding that we are moving toward blackness, right? We are moving toward all the lights going out. Why? Because that is the very backdrop against which Jesus will return. In bright splendor and glory, the sun will not be up when it happens. These celestial bodies have been blown out. And how bright is even a tiny light in a dark room? Now blacken the entire earth and have Christ return in radiant glory. Shield your eyes. That is what it means when it says every eye will see him on that day. Make no mistake. Every eye will see him on that day. So these are magnificent, spectacular events that Jesus is describing, and which we'll delve further into. But again, what do we not see as Jesus is describing these cosmic catastrophes? Do we see any pushback from the disciples? In Matthew's account, Mark or Luke's account, any of them saying, time out, <laughs> flag on the play. What are you talking about, Jesus? This is crazy talk. You see any of that? The Gospels record numerous times where the disciples expressed great confusion at what Jesus was saying. Countless times. Like Messiah was to be crucified, died, buried, and raised up again. That made no sense. Jesus told them a hundred times, and they still didn't get it. And the Gospels record that for us. But what about here? Such awesome claims of cosmic proportion, and we see no disagreement, no quizzings, no confusion is presented by the disciples, none at all. Why? Why? Because Jesus is talking about an old hat for these guys. The disciples are Old Testament Jews. The cosmic upheaval Jesus is talking about here is all over the Old Testament. They would have been taught this in the synagogue from diapers. The prophets speak. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Joel, Amos, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Haggai, all will see, speak 
on these incredible events. There's one God, one word. Let us look first to our first verse then, beloved. Verse 24. Verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation. Now pause there a moment. Now we briefly touched last message on what days Jesus is speaking of here. Those days, meaning everything that has happened from verse 6 up until now. The second three and a half years. And that tribulation, this being what Jesus calls in Matthew the great tribulation. Again, the second half. So in those days, these events are to occur at that time after that tribulation. Meaning, this is the very, very end. Everything is about to be wound up. And indeed, that is not hard to imagine. Life could barely survive in such conditions. This is the very turning down of the lights of the universe in preparation for the blinding return of Christ, meaning imminent. It is imminent when the inhabitants see this. In fact, if you look to your own Bible, the the title of this very section beginning in verse 24 is what? The second coming of Christ. There will have been cosmic signs prior to this. There will be. You'll recall the fourth trumpet in Revelation 8 verse 12. The fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck. So that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. But these are merely eclipses of sorts. This isn't the final turndown. Think of it like God putting the sun and the celestial bodies on a giant dimmer switch during the tribulation. So first it dims down on the fourth trumpet. It dims down. And this will what? This will freeze the earth. This will send all weather weather patterns into chaos, tides into chaos. So fourth trumpet freezes, trumpet. But then with the fourth bull, the dimmer switch goes back on high. Revelation 16, 8 through 9. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. So down to freezing and dark, fourth trumpet, up to scorching heat, fourth bull. Now, right before the very, very end, back down. The lights go out. Let's look at that. Back to our text, verse 24. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. Noticing there the all caps. Again, some translations don't do that for you, but it's, it's helpful, the ones that do. And we know immediately where to go, right? There's no need, we don't need, when we see those all caps, there's no need to surmise what or where Jesus is speaking of. We don't need to speculate, or even worse, allegorize. We have a clear testimony. The prophets speak everywhere. Now, we have both major and minor prophets that we're going to look to. And remember, when we're calling them major and minor That has nothing to do with their importance. It's merely talking about the length of the book. That's it. So Amos, for example, he was considered a minor prophet. Minor because Amos is a short book. And in fact, that's a wonderful place to begin, looking to Amos. No need to turn there, but you will need to grab your telescope, grab your binoculars. Amos 8 verse 9 reads, 
It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Now, as a reminder, anytime we see the word that day, that day, that's a clue. That's a tip off, right? What we're speaking of, the day of the Lord. Now, in Amos, we have both a near and a far fulfillment. There's your telescope. If you've been following our series up to that point, you're familiar with this concept. So here there was a total and a complete eclipse in 763 B.C. That was about 80 to 100 years after Amos wrote his prophecy. But yet we know that that is just a foretaste. Turn out the telescope to our far fulfillment, and Amos points to that day. That's the giveaway. A day when the sun will go out. In fact, if we look back to Amos 5, we get an incredible taste of men's delusion on that day. Beginning at verse 18, this is fascinating. Amos 5:18. watch the heart of men. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? Now, first, what do we see here? Amos is talking about wicked men who actually want the day of the Lord to come. Say, what? You want the day of the Lord? You want this final cataclysmic battle? They do. Why? How deluded is the fallen man? Listen to the next verse. Amos is going to tell us why they want it. Verse 19. It will be darkness and not light. And when man flees from a lion, as when a man flees from a lion, and a bear meets him, or goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. Meaning, you wicked men, you think that you're going to be in the light on the day of the Lord. But you're wrong. It'll be black. You think you will hunt the lion, but the lion's going to hunt you. You think you're going to launch down the path to victory, but there a bear stands in your way. You expect to lean casually upon your wall of security. Instead, you're going to get bit by a snake. Do you see what Amos is saying? In your deluded state, you want the day of the Lord because you actually think you're going to win. You think you're going to win. You are so deluded by the spirit of Antichrist and his false prophets and the mighty armies you see before you, you actually think the day of the Lord means vengeance and victory for you against this God who's been pouring out his bowls on you. And yet verse 20 of Amos, will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom? With no brightness in it. In other words, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Zechariah, in his prophecy, which is deeply eschatological, deals deeply with end times. Zechariah is right up there with Daniel and Revelation in his description of end times. He writes in chapter 14, verse 6 In that day, there's that key phrase again, in that day, Zechariah 14, 6, there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. Are we catching a theme here? Isaiah, the 13th chapter, beginning at verse 9, describes it yet again. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation 
and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. John the Revelator, he echoes Isaiah's language in Revelation 6. I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. You visualize that. And the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. How about Ezekiel chapter 32? Ezekiel says, and when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. Let's keep going. Jeremiah, he looks to these days. He laments in the, his fourth chapter, Jeremiah 4. I looked on the earth and behold, it was formless and void. And to the heavens and they had no light. And I looked on the mountains and behold, they were quaking. And all the hills moved to and fro. What bowls and trumpets does that sound like? I looked and behold, there was no man. And all the birds of the heaven had fled. I looked and beheld, the fruitful land was a wilderness. And all its cities were pulled down. Before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation. Yet I will not execute a complete destruction, for this earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. Because I have spoken, I have purposed, and I will not change my mind, nor will I turn from it. Are we beginning to see why we're capitalized in our text? Are we beginning to see why the disciples had no pushback on Jesus declaring and warning of these cosmic signs? God has spoken through the prophets clearly and repeatedly. The lights are going to go out. And it is only against the black backdrop that Christ will return to rule and reign in the millennial kingdom. Now standing there that evening on the Mount of Olives, still Wednesday of Passion Week. Can you believe that? Five months we've been on Wednesday of Passion Week. In this private group, in this special little group, hearing Jesus' exhortation and warning was a, a little-known disciple named Peter. After the risen Lord had ascended, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, came at Pentecost, and the birth of the church age was upon us. And it was that day that Peter had a little something to say. Turn with me in your Bibles, beloved, now. Pick up your Bibles, turn with me to Acts 2. Acts 2. We see here in Acts 2, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Peter's sermon at Pentecost. A sermon that verse 41 says added about 3,000 souls to that day. Wouldn't we love to know what Peter said? Well, beginning at verse 14, Peter stands up and he, and he clears his throat and, and he does what? Verse 16, Peter begins to preach... From the prophet Joel. First Old Testament scripture out of Peter's mouth. Verse 17 says what? And in the last days. 
speaking of the time when Messiah would come to set up his kingdom. And Peter goes on to quote Joel's prophecy. In fact, for those that have the translation, you could see that the majority of Peter's entire sermon at Pentecost is what? It's all caps. It's almost all Old Testament. Apparently, Peter did not get the memo from Andy Stanley that we should unhitch from the Old Testament. Now, while we don't have time to do a deep dive into the interpretive challenges of Joel here, look to verse 19. Act 20, 19, 2, 19. Peter quoting Joel. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Okay, great. Well, why tell them that? Why tell you, Lanesville 2023, that? Why set this stage? Why announce the darkness that will fall? Peter could have said a thousand things. A thousand things. This is the inauguration of the church age. Why put this center stage? There's no need to guess. Joel tells us. Peter tells us. Next verse, verse 21. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Meaning this is a cosmic bullhorn to the lost. The entire point of Peter's sermon was to call the lost to repentance, to declare the mystery of the gospel, to see that it was their sin that crucified the Lord of glory. But understand, beloved, even after Joel declares in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 10, that the earth quakes and the heavens tremble and the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness, and even after he goes on in chapter 2, verse 30 and 31, that he will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke, that the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. After all that, that's not the incredible scene of Joel 2. That God would blacken the earth and judge it for her wickedness is not incredible at all. It's quite rational and reasonable. No, here's where our mind melts. Here's where our mind melts. Joel 2, beginning at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting Weeping and mourning. And rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger. Abounding in loving kindness. And relenting of evil. Behold, it is the kindness of God. It is the goodness of God that brings men to repentance. That is what God wished to convey through his prophet Joel. This is what Peter wished to convey to the men at Pentecost. And what happened? Acts 2 verse 37. Look down. 
Now when they heard this, they were pierced. They were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter declared the prophecy of Joel to the hearers, showing them the dimming and the disintegration of the cosmos and that it was their sin that made that future judgment necessary. And that it was Christ Jesus, whom they crucified, that has made a way of escape. Brethren, what shall we do? The response, friend, to our text, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The response to that is to call on the name of the Lord. To be pierced through the heart. That my sin, my cosmic treason against the creator of heaven and earth should cause such calamity that I crucified the Lord of glory. And yet in the very midst of that, in the midst of that, Christ extends the right hand of friendship, the right hand of fellowship and forgiveness. If you'll humble yourself, In repentance and faith, what a savior. How patient, how kind. Love flows from Emmanuel's veins. Jesus' description continues in our final verse, verse 25. Mark 13, verse 25. And the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. The prophets speak. The prophet Haggai, he looked to this day, chapter 2, verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. Now these are sights that would be difficult for the mind to grasp. As you look up to the sky tonight, as you see the stars in the country sky, the constellations, You look at the bright twinkling of Mars or Venus, perhaps even view the Milky Way on a clear night. As our mind is boggled by images that come back from faraway telescopes, quasars and planets, whole galaxies beyond calculation and size and distance. As we consider the placement of the sun, any closer we would burn, any further away we would freeze. As we consider planets like Jupiter with 92 moons circling it in perfect precision. There is one truth we must grasp above all else when we consider these cosmic displays of grandeur. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is incredible. And this is not some abstract, spiritualized upholding. Look at what Paul tells the Colossians. For by him, by Christ, all things were created, 
both in heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, listen to this, saints, and in him all things hold together. So not only do we see Christ in view at creation, that Christ is the agent of creation, and that Christ is the goal of creation, and that Christ is the recipient of creation, and that in him he holds it all together, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. But what do we mean by that? What does that mean? This is not spiritualization or hyperbole. This is literally, scientifically, all things hold together. The word there, sunostemi, it means to coalesce, to cohere, to be constituted with, to be compacted together. 2 Peter 3, verses 10 and 12 speaks of these elements. Pay attention, beloved, to this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Elements meaning the building blocks of the universe. We're talking about atomic elements here. When we talk about sunustemi, for those elements to be held together, we are meant to apply this all the way down to the atom. Down to the nucleus of the atom. The nucleus of every atom is held together by what physicists call weak and strong forces. Very simply. The nucleus of an atom contains positively charged and neutral particles, right? We're taking you back to high school science here. However, those positive particles are repulsed electromagnetically by other positive protons. What does that mean? This means that the nucleus would be driven apart if it were not for that strong force which binds the nucleus together. What that means is there is an active force, an active positive force imposed on the universe, which actively holds the very atoms of the material world together every second of every day. What is that strong force? Scripture says it is the word of God. It is the word of Christ. The moment that strong force is removed, the positive protons would be repulsed and all of creation would literally rip itself apart at the atomic level. When scripture says that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power and that in him all things hold together, you'd better believe it. Literally, they hold together. When Peter says that the elements will be dissolved, that word for dissolved also means unloosed. Unloosed. When the strong force is removed, the building blocks of the universe come apart. Like our text here in verse 25 is conveying. 
God lets go of the nuclear forces which hold the very atom together. When this happens, orbits and stars (laughs) fluctuate in ways no one could really imagine. Trajectories of cosmic elements will be thrown off. Dr. John MacArthur, he writes, quote, But when the Lord withdraws the least of his power from the universe, nothing in it will function normally, and every aspect of the physical world will be disrupted beyond imagination. All the forces of energy, here called the power of heavens, which hold everything in space constant, will be in dysfunction. The heavenly bodies will careen helter-skelter through space, and all navigation whether stellar or solar, magnetic or gyroscopic, will be futile because all stable reference points and uniform natural forces will have ceased to exist or else become unreliable. The earth is held together by the power of God. And when that power is diminished, the resulting chaos will be inconceivable. Beloved, we remember the prophet Joel, even in the midst of terrible prophecy, God called his people back to him, return to me. Even through the calamity prophesied in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Daniel, return to me. Peter's second epistle, the third chapter, is even titled, the coming day of the Lord. And Peter is literally describing the atoms of the earth tearing themselves apart. And yet right in the middle of that chapter, verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's the point, beloved of God. Today's opportunity to come in repentance and faith is a gift beyond measure or price. The very one who upholds the universe by his hand, that word you've heard today, No other voice in your heart or your head matters. Beloved, the prophets speak. And the one who made you calls you. What a glorious day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of you this morning. Lord, that you are the positive force acting on even the atom that holds it together. Lord, we are reliant on you for even our next breath. And you have been patient with us. You have been kind and good to us. And we desire to see your kind face. Lord, if there be anyone here today that does not know you, that cannot stand up in all surety 
and say, Christ is my Lord. Lord, we ask that today would be that day. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your warning. We rejoice in it. Lord, not only that justice would be done, but that we would be spared from such a time. Lord, we ask as we go out on this Father's Day to fellowship with food and fellowship, Lord, that you would keep our fathers, that you would keep them pure. Lord, we know the greatest gift that a father can give his family is that of a holy life. So we ask, Lord, that you would grant that. Go before them in Jesus' name. Amen.